So here it is, Easter Sunday, and not only is the pastor not preaching on a resurrection account, he's not even preaching on the New Testament. <laughs> what kind of a pastor preaches out of the Old Testament and the book of Numbers at that? But in 2018, we as a church are walking through this often ignored book of the Bible. It's easily ignored because anyone who attempts to read through the Bible uh, from cover to cover, not a good idea anyway, but you start off in Genesis, which goes okay because there's lots of great narratives in there and it's pretty easy to follow. And then you get to Exodus, which really starts off good stuff, exciting stuff, until you get to the section on the blueprints for the tabernacle. And then if you make it through all that, you land yourself in the book of Leviticus and a bunch of laws. A few chapters reading that and you say, forget this, I'm going back to the New Testament. And the Old Testament gets a bad rap as only being just a bunch of laws given by a God of wrath. And we are tired of laws. In fact, in our litigious society, we are not unfamiliar with laws. In fact, I recently purchased this little cord for my computer, it attaches from the USB port in my computer to an HDMI port to put things on a TV or to project things. With this little cord came this. You all know what these things are, right? The law is longer than the cord. That's because, and I've not read them, I, you can't read them, it's like minuscule print anyway. You, can't, you don't read the stuff because we all have common sense and we know what it says. We know that you're not supposed to put it in your mouth. But somewhere along the way, somebody in California probably, because it's always in California, did something like that and they got sick and they sued the company. So companies now have to protect themselves legally with a bunch of legalese. And just as we ignore the terms and conditions documents for all kinds of things, we tend to ignore the Old Testament as thinking it's also equally, equally irrelevant. How can stuff that happened 3,500 years ago still be relevant in our lives today? Well, how can the rising of Jesus 2,000 years ago still be relevant for us today? Well, this morning, we're gonna see how those two things come together, how things 3,500 years ago and how things 2,000 years ago are so absolutely relevant for our life today that we might see it before we read the word. Let's go before the author in prayer. Our Lord, you are eager to speak to us. Make us eager to listen. All of your word is your revelation. It has been revealed throughout the ages to your people at different times and different circumstances, using different human agents. And then by your providence, this ancient document has been perfectly preserved that we might have your word still for us today, to have such ready access to the complete revelation of you. We can open it in our laps. We can open it in apps. We can have it everywhere we go. But in order to hear your word as your word, we need you. And so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit right now to bear witness to the reading to the proclamation of your word, that we would hear it and receive it as your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher. We know that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. 
Well, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look just at some highlights from these first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. I sense a relief from some people who thought I was actually going to read all 10 chapters of Numbers. And then we're going to interpret it through the lens of that New Testament reading from earlier in the service from Hebrews 10. Earlier this year, we did something similar, an excursus, seeing Christ in Israel's worship by focusing on sacred space in the book of Numbers. Well, this morning, we are seeing Christ in Israel's worship with a focused discussion on sacred acts, the sacred activities of worship, the mobile tabernacle in the wilderness that became the permanent structure of the temple in Jerusalem was the sacred space for Old Testament Israel. But it foreshadowed Jesus who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus, of course, referring to himself, that he would be raised on the third day and he would become the resurrected temple. And then the apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple because God's spirit lives in you. Indeed, because of Christ's resurrection, the spirit of the living Christ dwells in the hearts of believers. He lives inside of us. Just as God lived in the tabernacle amidst Israel, now more personally and closely, God dwells inside of us. Paul then wrote to the Ephesian church, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so we are temples personally, but also as the church of Jesus Christ, we are temples corporately. The resurrected Jesus dwells by the Holy Spirit in us personally and among us as the church. And that takes us to the book of Numbers, seeing Christ in Israel's worship, particularly the sacred activities of worship. And the first of those sacred activities of worship is listening to God's word. And that's how it is the book of Numbers begins. The first thing we read is the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, in the desert or the wilderness of Sinai, the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. That first verse is also where we get the true title of this book of the Bible. It is most commonly called the book of Numbers because that's what the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this Hebrew text, calls it. But the original Hebrew title is Bemidbar, in the wilderness or in the desert as the NIV translates, but Bemidbar, in the wilderness. This book of the Bible is about God with his people in the wilderness. The wilderness is the sacred space where these things took place. And the wilderness is where the sacred activities take place. The Israelites, the chosen people of God who were delivered, miraculously saved from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, but then brought into the wilderness. We, chosen and miraculously saved out of sin by the red blood of Christ and brought into the wilderness. We are heading towards the promised land, but we're not there yet. We are living clearly in the wilderness. And so our worship takes place in the wilderness where life is difficult, 
We have been rescued, and the rescuer continues to lead us. And so it's good for us to spend time daily and personally listening to God's word. But we also do this corporately as people listening together as we are now and responding together. Moses did not simply listen to God's word and then keep it to himself. He delivered God's word to the people, particularly because so little of God's word applies only to us personally. It is especially for God's people to hear and respond to together. And so along with listening to God's word, we see the sacred activity of being the church. In Numbers, the first thing God told his people to do was to take a census, to count every single person who was part of the community, composed of families and clans and tribes. We've talked about the two ways in which people come together into groups. There are edge-bounded groups and center-focused groups. Center-focused groups are the organizations that center around a common interest or activity. There's music societies, there's sports teams, there's school clubs, internet groups, and you've got core members of all those things, and then countless others who sort of come and go. Edge-bounded groups are those clearly defined boundary groups. You're either in the group or you're not. And family is one of those edge-bounded groups. Family, we are bound together as family, even if we don't have anything in common. Especially happens at holidays when you get together with your extended family and think, I have nothing in common with all these people that I'm celebrating a holiday with. If not for the fact that we were somehow blood-related, I wouldn't spend time with these people. The people of God, we are an oddity because we are both edge-bounded and center-focused. We are a family with a whole host of differences and personalities and preferences, but we are also united by the living God and the Holy Spirit and the sacrifice Christ who lives in us. All been saved by the same sacrifice of Christ. So if a person wanted to become an Israelite, they couldn't just show up one day and say, I'm an Israelite now. They had to become part of a specific family and clan and tribe. So it is that someone can't just say, hey, I'm a part of the church now person becomes a part of a particular church. In fact, at the end of his letter to the Galatians, Paul refers to the church now made up of Jew and Gentile who have placed faith in Christ. He calls the church the Israel of God. The New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. The Old Testament Israelites were the Old Testament church. So what we see in the Old Testament helps us to see ourselves, especially as the corporate community of God's people. If a person is committed to following Christ, then that commitment includes being part of the church. Our New Testament passage from Hebrews 10 uh, helps to connect the dots for us in this. It begins with this wonderful exposition of Jesus Christ as the once-for-all sacrifice so that New Testament worship becomes uh, Christ-centered. But then Hebrews 10 continues with therefore applications. There are four let us applications given in Hebrews 10. Four applications that begin with the words, let us. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us 
not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That is so radically countercultural for us as Americans in the Western world who are so individualistic. It's all about me. What do I want? How does this address me? And the scriptures are really about us. The Old Testament and New Testament community worshiping regularly together in community, being the church, among people with whom you may have little in common, people with different personalities and different preferences, but we become us in Christ. And so what I'm going to say now may surprise you, although I've said it many times, but I don't really like our worship services as Westminster. I'm the one who puts the services together and I lead them, but I don't really like our worship services. And it's kind of good that I don't like our worship services because first it reminds me that worship isn't about me. It's about God. The question is, does God like our worship? And then second, it reminds me that this is not the church of Dan. Worship is for the larger community of people to worship the Lord. Some things that we do, I really resonate with and feel free to do that. Other things, uh, I don't. And you have different experiences in the midst of that. On any given Lord's Day, the goal is to give the wider community of people opportunity to worship the God consistent in ways that God has revealed he wants to be worshiped. And so that's why we talk about the sacred activities of worship being God-focused. In Numbers chapter 2, after the membership roles had been completed, the Lord told Moses to direct the 12 tribes to camp around the tabernacle, three tribes on each of the four sides, so that everyone was equally focused on God at the center of their existence. And the last verse of chapter 2 tells us that they did exactly this. The Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards. That is the way they set out, each with his clan and family. So everybody had their space. Now, that is not a mandate for assigned seating in worship. The opposite, actually. I heard someone quip recently, some churches are so holy, even the seats are saved. I think I've told you all about the uh, Presbyterian Church in Chambersburg that split over the issue of pew rent. There's actually this long-standing practice of pew rent. Your name was actually on a pew. You paid a certain amount of money, and then that seat was your seat. Well, there was a group of people in the church that thought that that practice needed to end. And there was such a disagreement that the church split. A couple of years later, the first group had decided that they ought to get rid of that practice of pew rent, but the discussion and disagreement had become heated, and the two groups refused to reconcile. Ah, what a witness for Christ. When the early church gathered together for worship, we don't picture them all scattered way far away from each other. The people of God sat near to each other, focused not on themselves, but focused on God together. And the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, are not focused on us, but on God. Unfortunately, there have been too many popular worship songs that are people-focused, people singing about their worship, their experiencing of worship, rather than singing about the God we worship. What we sing and where we sing it is to be God-focused, not people-focused. So then sacred acts in worship 
are both God-focused and Christ-centered. Numbers chapter 3 tells us that while the 12 tribes camped around the tabernacle, the 13th tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests, camped between the tabernacle and all the people who were camped around. The priests were the mediators between God and his people. The people brought their sacrifices to the mediator priests who then offered them to God. The mediator priests went into the holy place to light the incense as the people stood outside to pray, showing how the prayers go up to God just as the incense smoke rises up. Again, our New Testament reading tells us this was the foreshadowing of the priestly work of Christ. The sacrifices that the priests made didn't take away sin because when Christ, our final priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, then he sat down at the right hand of God. And so it's Christ that sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us. The Holy Spirit carries our prayers up to Christ, who then speaks them into the ear of our Father. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Our prayers are heard not because of our sacrifices. Our prayers are heard not because of how well we articulate them. They are heard because the risen Lord Jesus Christ intercedes continually on our behalf. And in the process of our prayers going to the Father, they are sanctified so that even self-centered prayers are transformed and become Christ-centered prayers, God-glorifying prayers. That's because the sacred activities of worship are not only Christ-centered, but cross-centered, focused on the atoning sacrifice Christ made on the cross. Again, our New Testament reading, by one sacrifice, Christ has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We are being made perfect forever. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're not made holy by our sacrifices. We're not made holy by the things we do. We are made holy because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Consider that whenever you read the holiness laws in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 5 said that people became unclean and had to be sent outside the camp if they were unclean, if they had infectious skin disease or a discharge of any kind or because they touched a dead body. And Numbers 5 goes on to talk about becoming unclean or unholy because of sexual unfaithfulness. And in fact, all of the Levitical laws had been given during this 13-month period that Israel first camped in the wilderness. And those laws loaded with various ceremonial uncleanness laws, as well as the laws dealing with immoralities of various kinds. So that if you take all those laws seriously, especially at the heart level, you realize you can't even go a day without becoming completely unclean, that you are unholy. You can't even make it an hour. And that's the point. To say, I can't be good enough. I can't be holy enough. I am not clean enough. I need something outside of myself in order truly to be holy and declared perfect because I'm not. On Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday of October, October 31st, we recalled how Martin Luther once lived under this oppressive realization. He would pray for hours on end, confessing all of his sins that he could think of. And then he would start to walk back to his room and he'd remember some more sins. And so he'd go back down and he'd pray again. 
He was overwhelmed with his sinfulness. But then he heard the gospel. And he heard, you have been made holy through the sacrifice of Christ. You have been declared perfect forever. It's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that is credited to you because of his death and resurrection. The cross-centered truth changed Martin Luther, fueled the Reformation, and is what guides us still today. In the wilderness, under the old covenant, those who were ceremonially unclean were to be sent away from the camp. But Jesus himself was taken outside the camp so that we find holiness in him. Sin is that which separates us from God. It's not just sinful acts. It is our sinful condition that puts us in a condition of death. The Old Testament purity laws vividly described the spiritual condition of death with physical maladies. But Jesus himself was taken outside the camp so that we could have new life, abundant life, eternal life in Christ who is victorious over sin and death. All of which is to say that the sacred activities of worship are ultimately a response to God. We don't worship in order to get God to do something for us. We worship because of what God has already done for us. The end of Numbers chapter 6 gives us the priestly benediction. That word benediction is the two Latin words bene and decere, which means uh, good and speak or well and speak. It's wishing you well. Someone sneezes and you say, God bless you. You're wishing them well. So here's the thing. It's the Lord's blessing to us. The Lord wishing us well. And it's not a conditional blessing. If you do something, then God will bless you. It is the unearned, unmerited, decisive decision of the Lord to simply bless us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his face upon you and give you peace. It doesn't sound like a God of wrath at all, does it? And that's because God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ to atone for our sins once for all, so that because Jesus rose again from the dead, the Lord could pour out his blessing on us. It is in response to this that Numbers chapter 7 records the tribes bringing offerings at the dedication of the tabernacle. One by one for 12 consecutive days, like the 12 days of Christmas, one of the 12 tribes would bring a gift. Now the whole tribe didn't bring the gift, that's a lot of people. They would have one representative leader who brought the gift on behalf of the tribe. Kind of like if you are uh, got a group of people who go together on a gift for somebody. You all went in on purchasing it, but you ask one person to actually bring the gift itself to that person, and that person says, this is from all of us. When our choir sings or someone else presents an offertory anthem, we say they represent us before God with this offering. It's as though the choir is saying to God, here you go. It's from all of us. In fact, that's the very nature of our tithes and offerings. They all go into one account. All the tithes put together so that all of our ministry comes from that shared giving. And we don't give a tithe in order to get God to do something. We give a tithe out of what God has already given to us. 
And then our shared ministry is done from those tithe offerings. And the ministry that we do, we do when we say, here you go, it's from all of us. So worship is really a dialogue between God and his people. God speaks to us by his word and the call to worship, and we respond with prayers of adoration. God speaks to us by his word, and we respond in prayers of confession. God gives to us everything we have, and we respond with tithes and prayers of thanksgiving. God speaks to us by his word, and we respond with prayers of intercession and supplication. God speaks by his word in the benediction, and we respond in life so that our vocational callings, we serve and love one another. And all of life becomes a response to God. All of life is a resurrection response. Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. We aren't just forgiven, we are enabled to live a new life. Whatever had been in the past for which we have been forgiven, we don't need to repeat that. We can go forward and do it different. And even if we stumble and fail, we're still forgiven. We're still perfect in God's eyes. But we are free to continue to live increasingly new life, abundant life, looking forward to eternal life. That's our resurrection response. The resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago affects us today. He lives in us by the Spirit And we who were dead in our sins are now alive in Christ. So that all of our life, every part of it, is a resurrection response. It is Easter Sunday. We live Easter in the wilderness. We live our resurrection life in the wilderness. The worship and life of the Israelites in the wilderness 3,500 years ago shows us ourselves. It shows us our need of God and shows us that God is with us in the wilderness. Listening to God's word in community, being the church in worship that is God-focused, Christ-centered and cross-centered in response to God every day becomes Easter in the wilderness. And so may your Easter be filled with Jesus. May your Easter be filled with life that is found in him as Savior and Lord. And indeed, may the truth set you free. Amen.